The Unconventional Therapist's Guide to Nothing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unconventional Therapist. This is Dave. I'm joined as always, and I literally mean always, with Greg. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't get rid of the guy. He keeps showing up every week. I just, I literally just hop on here and suddenly like Greg shows up like two minutes after and I'm like, dude, I was just about to talk about this alone. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you're always looking to get a special guest that's not me, but I won't let it yeah. happen. It's here again. Like, I need to change the email password, you know? I've been the guest host since the first episode. <laughs> you got to put the S on because of me. Yeah. It's like, damn. So what's up, Dave? Uh, not much, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. This is a fun little, I don't know. I don't want to say lighthearted topic, but it wasn't as in-depth of research as we, we normally do. This is the exact opposite of lighthearted. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. It really it really is. is almost a tragedy, actually. Well, maybe what we're doing is we're dipping our toe in that spooky season as we, you know, start taking steps towards Halloween. Right? Or I mean, or okay. We are entertaining a request episode. That's right. Re- requests with an S, actually, episode. Because we had two requests for this and we both found it sort of interesting and by that i mean very interesting so we decided to do it so what are we talking about here well i was going to give the shout out to the people who requested it okay yeah why don't you do that well why don't you do the first one because it was your neighbor so emily yeah emily thank you for that and then we got another request from a dude named colton who i think is pretty chill because he seems like because I because I I dove into his like pictures and stuff. Wow, Greg, you're saying that on air. Uh, you know, you know we're well, recording. Yeah, that's okay. Because and he's probably listening. <laughs> that's fine. I think he's from you know uh, a picture says a thousand words, right? Yeah. And he seems like a really cool guy, and we figured, you know what, this guy posted us posted about us, so let's do him the favor of doing his topic. Why not? And right? Greg wants to hang out with you, so. <laughs> And he's acting very thirsty right now about that. I'm photoshopping myself in his pictures. As you're you're creeping him out. And <laughs> not only that, he recently posted us in his story and told all of his friends to check us out. And now you're embarrassing him front in front of all of his friends. Oh man, way Oops. to go, Greg! All right, maybe I should just stick to what I do and uh, start talking about the the topic. All right. Yeah. So, Dave, let me let me tell you this. Let me say this. And we we know about this. We we've talked about Nellie Bly, and and you've probably watched a thousand horror movies about the subject. But asylums, mental institutions, historically speaking, I mean, not so much today, but they were hell on earth. You can't even put two words. You really have to see pictures and visualize these kinds of things that the way the people were treated in these places. I mean, you've heard of the word bedlam, right? Which is you know always synonymous with chaos. That was literally the name of a hospital. So. At an attempt to eliminate, what does it mean? It means like chaos, bed lamb. Well, I mean, we're not going to break it down Latin because you can't. It's it's it was a hospital first, right? Like bedrock, like from the from the Greek bed to sleep and lamb, whatever. <laughs> from, the, from the Greek Flintstones. That's right. That's right. Oh, we're going with okay. We're going with bedrock. Okay. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> So all these places are horrible. We know that. We've talked about it ad nauseum. And in an attempt to kind of get rid of these places, make them obsolete, doctors decided that they were going to try to come up with a couple of procedures. And still, to this day, there's not a ton of procedures at our disposal as in the psychology or psychiatry fields. And maybe that's for the best, because today we're going to talk about two of those procedures. Dave's going to run us through the infamous lobotomy. But first, I'll be discussing ECT. And I got to say, Dave, some of the stuff I learned about this might shock you. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, God. What does ECT stand for, Greg? So people who are not in the field will also know what the hell you're talking about. All right, good. Uh, electroconvulsive therapy, right? Why is but that I... good to you, Greg? What's that? Why is that good? It's good in a sense. It was good for me to learn about this because I had the same stigma as everybody else. In fact, 
I didn't even know. I thought they were just kind of electro- electrocuting the brain and kind of that's what they're doing, but they're inducing a seizure. See, I didn't realize that. Hmm. So they're using electricity to treat disorders like depression and psychosis, bipolar, really, really resistant disorders that, you know, people have tried everything, right? Yeah. But this is, so they're, you know, at times you might use a stimulant, but this is a stimulant times, you know, a trillion. It's like 70 to 120 volts to your head, right? So uh, Dave, did you realize that? Did you realize that the, the process was to induce a seizure? Yes. Okay. Well, you're a smart guy. So this thing's pretty, it's, it's effective. The efficacy rate of this is 70 to 90%. It almost makes me think of when we were talking about mushrooms, like, all right, so the efficacy rate is 79%. Why isn't everyone just going to get in their head shot? Yeah. I mean, I don't know why maybe. So it's, so money, I guess, probably, but yep. you have to be under anesthesia, which no one, and that's kind of a, so for, that's a big deal. Having to do, especially for your mental health, you're doing a procedure that takes, that you need to be put under for. So it's usually for a last resort, resort unless you're pregnant and you're having a really hard time with bipolar or, or any of these severe disorders because it's really safe for pregnancy. So it's pretty safe overall. It's just the anesthesia that'll get you most times, right? So it's, it's had a hugely negative stigma despite being so safe. And that's probably because of the history, like working out the kinks. It was really dangerous, especially in the beginning. And, you know, pop culture, which we'll probably get into, but one flew over the cuckoo's nest is what sticks out in my mind, right? Like it almost had to, like not to get ahead of us, but it almost had that lobotomizing effect, it seemed like. And it's not really like that at all. Right. But, you know, as safe as we're saying it is, it still definitely has some risks. And there's, there's two ways to do this thing. So you can do it bilateral where you put electrodes on either side of the head or you can do unilateral where you put one in the middle and then one on and and you pick a side right the bilateral is much more dangerous and usually has the side effects but at the same time it's almost 90 percent effective so that's why when people are like in really bad shape but when you say effective what does that mean so i'm glad you asked me that thank you you're welcome. because i mean i do say effective and when i'm thinking of it it's to me it's like what's really effective if your computer's broken yeah you know you shut the damn thing off and you turn it back on and i i honestly think that's a lot of what's going on here you're shocking the brain it's kind of resetting and the reason why what leads me to think that is there's an 80 percent relapse rate if you don't continue to get electroshock therapy or, you know, it's not coupled with therapy. So, okay. so there's something here that's happening. They're not exactly sure what it is, but they, they don't know if it's, you know, some people think it's neurogenesis. Some people think that the seizure is kind of like a, a, a reset. And, you know, others might think it has something to do with the, the monoamine oxidized that was sort of associated with the early antidepressants. So it's affecting all those areas, but just like any other pharmacological option, how exactly is it working? I mean, no one really knows, right? Wow. You know what's crazy about that? What? You just sounded like the biggest nerd using all those words, but then you had no answer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, let me say it. Let me put it to you like this. When you're reading, when we're reading books about like nerd nerding out about old school, like psychiatrists, like I sometimes do. And they're calling in the late 1800s, they're calling like these disorders, like bipolar, um, uh, a chemical imbalance in the 1800s. What are we calling it right now? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, it works how it works. People can theorize, they can come up with all these ideas, which is great, but we're not really sure. To me, it's like, it gets you over the hump of a really dark place, you know? Well, I I do feel like it. It's almost literally like you would think. It's it feels like it's like a charge, and you mm. like, you know, it like stimulates the brain, and whatever that stimulation does is it starts to get it to to work. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe at like an overproductive point, but like this is for someone who's underproductive, right? So if like we're you're going there for like um, persistent depression, yeah. 
and you get ECT. Yeah, it's 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 almost like it feels like it would be like charging it up, charging up the brain and getting it to to go into overdrive to start producing those chemicals that your body is underproducing, which then would have the effect of feeling euthymic, feeling happy. Yeah. So so you're right. It's like you're starting over, right? And the reason why there's an 80% relapse rate is because, all right, you're starting over, but you're the same person. So where you're, you're going to keep telling yourself the same stories you've been telling yourself all this time and get yourself right back into the same spot. Sure. Maybe, right? I, I've heard it described as recently by a patient that there's little fires in their brain and, you know, their whole life they've been treating, like you, you, you made a uh, reference to this in the borderline episode, but there's little fires everywhere in their brain. And sometimes you know, they, they can put them out or they can deal with them and they're, they're in the front of their brain dealing with it. But, but there's those little embers and until those are completely out, they're going to keep ending up in the same spot. And I think that's, what's going on here. Like, yes, you press the computer, you shut it off, but that virus that's in your computer, it's going to start doing the same things. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So really it does come back to what we do, Dave, is is the most important thing because honestly, if you take therapy out of the equa- out of the equation, this is this buys you time. Yeah, that's essentially what ECT is doing. Someone's severely suicidal; they're in a severely depressive state, and they this they use this as a last resort, and it gets them to a point where all right, well now we can start therapy. We're not in a place because sometimes when you're super depressed, you're not even in a place where you can you have the capacity to feel good or you have the capacity to want to try. So this is maybe something that gets you to that place where you can, you can have a better starting point. Right. If someone's getting ECT done, like we're not talking about like, Oh, I'm feeling in the dumps today. It's like, no, this has been going on. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like it's a persistent depression. Like it's been going on for forever as far as they're concerned, or it's, you know, some other kind of like significant mental health issue something needs to be done because the just the typical approaches aren't working. Yeah, it's like any kind of mental disorder where there, it's been persistent for so long and everything's been been tried and you're just at a point where you need some kind of relief. And then how do you track the results for something like this? The same way we track the results for anything else, like a PHQ-9 or um, some kind of depression inventory. I guess just, how would you describe that? Like a survey? Is that how you're feeling? Yeah, it's like a self- well, you, I mean, uh, PHQ-9 is a, like a scale that you might get at a doctor's office to kind of rate your depression levels. Just ask you a bunch of like a series of basic questions about your thoughts and how you're feeling, uh, how often you're feeling, you know, and that's more like recent. That's like within the last two weeks. How often have you been feeling this? How often yeah. have you had a loss in like interest in activities and stuff like that? So it's kind of like a self-rating scale. Yeah, I so I think that as you know, we're deciding what this is, we kind of agree that this is kind of a last resort jumpstart to the brain. It doesn't really seem like it treats anything in particular. It's just that kind of jolt. It's again struck by lightning, right? So that brings us to the history of this, which I think is the fascinating part. Hey, Greg, um, sorry, did you, are you going to talk about side effects or did you already? So, okay. I could talk about some side effects and no, I hadn't. Um, but obviously there with anything there's there's risks and the side effects would include like short-term memory memory loss for sure cognitive side effects which are not uncommon at all are amnesia enterograde and retrograde but usually fades so the, the the types of amnesia that you can experience are the the types that you don't remember the events that happened before, or you're not going to remember the events that happened after you're, you're really having some like memory issues. So other than that, though, it's actually relatively safe. Do you know anyone that's done ECT? So I do have a patient that has had ECT in the past, and it's actually a really terrifying case where they had jumped off a bridge and survived. So if you want to talk about a very serious situation, um, this was before I met them, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was it was a very serious situation. So those are the cases where someone's like very suicidal. It, it was used and, um, you know, it had the effect. But the thing is that she reports is it worked for a while. And I think that's what you hear commonly. Yeah. I had a coworker that I was friendly with that was actively going through it as we were working together. And one of the things that she did report, she did feel it was effective. 
at times would need to get the procedure done again because you know it doesn't like we said it doesn't last forever uh the short-term memory loss thing was something she experienced so that i mean was, it's got you've got to have that right yeah, I mean, you're le- yeah. like 70 to 120 volts to your brain now do you find that this could be something that could become like it dependent on it almost like a i like, wonder i wonder if like we're talking about people with like lifelong mm. mental health uh illnesses is this something that they're gonna need to do forever i don't know yeah that's difficult i I mean if it's hard to imagine it not having a long-term impact on the body and the brain right but i don't know because obviously i'm not out here doing the research some but other people are and i'm sure we'll find that out down the road just like everything else. It's like we're gonna find out about vaping and ECT. And yeah. it's both not gonna be great. Yeah, yeah. But they, mean, this I, isn't but it's promising though, because it is like a thing that it's like an another thing that can be utilized to help with really tough to figure out issues, you know? It's nice for people to have like I've tried everything. Is there one more thing? And it's like, yeah, there's one more thing. Like we can yeah. try, you know? Sure. This, this isn't new either. This is 1785 they started the therapeutic use of seizure induction that is crazy so this is documented in the london medical and surgical journal like can you imagine what kind of like igor like lightning bolt oh, situation that's so primitive oh then. my god so they couldn't measure the voltage that's what's important about now like they've, they've kind of gotten to the sweet spot where it's like all right 70 to 120 volts where this is a safe zone here yeah. they were just zapping you with whatever kind of zap that was that was the inspiration for frankenstein you know that right absolutely yeah I absolutely i made that up and you're going along with the lie now wow greg i made, totally made that up and you went <laughs> absolutely i knew that that made perfect sense to me <laughs> do you know that this was okay so so this i just recently saw this on um and this was just a coincidence because i'm i'm running it back uh band of brothers have you ever seen that no that's too bad so one of the people they have hysterical blindness and it's just a form of conversion disorder and a lot of soldiers were getting this issue during you know the war with seeing these atrocities world war one especially and they were using this i mean ben franklin was a proponent of this claiming that an electrostatic machine could cure a woman of hysterical fits and you know dave i bet it cured <laughs> it cured everything right yeah yeah i mean she wasn't having any fits anymore that's for sure that's what that's what's like getting really dark about this right so this is a kind of we're talking about a time when this was cruel this was like a forced upon thing. People had to do this. They they didn't have any rights. There was forced upon them. There weren't any pharmacological options. So this is like what was leading us into what you're going to talk about, right? Like this really dark time where you're trying to figure out how to keep these people out of the asylums, how to keep like people would think that people with mental health disorders are extremely dangerous at this time. It's like a scary thing, right? So how do we make these people more manageable? And I think one of the ways is through the lobotomy. And before you get started, I can actually tell you this, like the breakdown of this real word, not the not bedlam, but it's from the Greek lobe, lobe and cut, right? Yeah. Right? So I mean... Lobo. Lobo. <laughs> and Tomies means cuts. Sure. So, so cut brain. Cut brain. Well, you totally stole my thunder as usual. And okay. you set the tone for what's happening around the time of <laughs> the invention of lobotomies, which is the whole story. So I'll just. People love hearing this stuff. So go ahead. They don't talk. like hearing repeated, repeated. Well, facts. You could probably say it better. Boring. That's very boring, Greg. Uh, So actually, this is something that I found to be rather interesting. The lobotomy itself, like we know who invented it. We know the first lobotomies. But like one thing I wasn't so aware of is what it was modeled after was actually something from 1933 with uh, two Yale researchers who removed the prefrontal cortex from two monkeys. Mm. What they found was that the monkeys still were able to have their intellect, but they 
were now removed of those emotions that would lead to outbursts and violence. So, you know, take that into consideration as we start to look at the future issues that we're, we're going to see. So the first lobotomy was actually in 1935. It was in Portugal by a neurologist named Dr. Igas Muniz, um, who his work was inspired by a Swiss psychiatrist who had performed some of the earliest psychosurgeries in the 1880s. So I guess he was, you know, kind of influenced by this. Initially, it was called the Lukotomoy. I don't know if I said that right. I don't know. Lukotomoy. What does that mean, Greg? I have no idea. It means cut, snip, snip brains right there, I think. <laughs> Okay. Um, so he performs the first procedure in November of 1935 in a Lisbon hospital by drilling holes in the skull on either side of the prefrontal cortex and injecting alcohol inside to destroy the fibers that connect it. Hmm. Sounds messy. It does. I just picture like the overspill of alcohol at the side yeah. of the, you know, the head. One for you, one for me, the doctor, the old school doctor. It's like, you don't get that on my clothes. <laughs> So yeah, this doctor is pretty much the founding father of lobotomies. And he, do you know, Greg, that he, in 1949, he actually won a Nobel Prize in medicine for inventing the procedure? Yeah, but it wasn't him that kind of made it. This, like, Greg, I didn't ask you that. Okay. I asked you if you knew that one fact. I did know. I did know what that. Is, yeah, what is, what is that, Greg? Stealing thunder. Dude, you did you want to know Greg, stealing you don't thunder. even you don't show your hands at all. Like I never know if you're gonna say the thing that I'm it's thinking. It's just a question. Just uh, answer the question, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you know do you notice when you ask me a question, I say no or yeah? Okay. Well, you're yeah. right. All right. I like I, I like that. I know I know I'm right. I'm just like to kind of elaborate. Steal thunder. 1936. <laughs> American neurologist Walter. Jackson Freeman, okay. aka WJ Freeman. This sounds like he'd be like a newspaper uh, product. Uh, WJ Freeman adopts the procedure and he calls it the lobotomy. So this is now the lobotomy as we know it. Um, he modifies the surgery by introducing a surgical tool instead of alcohol, creating a prefrontal lobotomy. So now we're not using the alcohol to get rid of those those pesky old brain fibers. Yeah. Now we're going to get something in there to kind of clear them all out of the way. Just like, you know, getting rid of some cobwebs with something. Very interesting and gross. It is gross. He ends up partnering with a man named James Watts, who's also a neurosurgeon. And they performed the first prefrontal lobotomy in the U.S. in September of 1936. So Freeman's not even licensed to be a surgeon. Did I steal your thunder on that? Because you, t- you call them a neurosurgeon. <laughs> a neurologist, I meant to say. Okay. No, Watts was a neurosurgeon. Yes, yes, yes. He's a neurologist. That's right. I did not call him a neurosurgeon. I just said <laughs> as well when I said Watts, but okay. In, in 1945, uh, he again modifies the procedure and creates what we call the transorbital lobotomy, which he could perform click- quickly without leaving scars because... We don't want those pesky scars, that's for sure. We don't no. want alcohol dripping on our clothes, and we don't want pesky scars. So this involves an ice pick-looking object that goes under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket, followed by then a mallet that's uh-huh. used to drive what that ice pick thing. It's called an orbitoclast. Yes. It drives it through the thin layer of bone and into the brain. So I will say something here. The orbitoclast was the second um, generation of that tool when the first one was literally an ice box from his fridge. I mean, an ice pick from his fridge. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. So you're, you're saying like you're hammering an ice pick into someone's eyeball. In yeah, the, above and, the eyeball. And it's in and the, I, it's inpatient I, or no outpatient procedure. Like here, you do this and then you can pick me up in an hour. Well, that's why he... In, like modifies it so that it can be done quickly. It can be done without scarring. And it also doesn't require a neurosurgeon. And because now it can be performed outside of the operating room, allowing you to perform multiple, many, as yeah. many as needed. And guess why this would make people happy? 
Because now we don't have to have people stored in the asylums that are now overflowing, and we have these quick results, and it's just a quick turnover. It so is Walter Freeman, like, is he a, a noble character, or is he a bad guy? Well, I mean, it seems like he's fixing problems, so there is always that idea that, like, what is his intention? Yeah. I think this says something, though, because in 1947, his partner, uh, Watts, James Watts, ends the partnership due to disgust of where the the procedure's gone. Like, just having what is considered to be, like, a surgical procedure go to, like, this simple, off- like, quote-unquote, office procedure is, to him, it's just, you know, it's basically not taking it seriously. I wonder if a lot of it has to do with the reasons why people are getting it too. You know, yes. like I, I know there's probably cases where people are bringing their wives in for hysteria or whatever, just out of convenience instead of necessary, you know, for their yeah, own. And, and I can get into more of like the purpose of the lobotomies. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of going through how it was developed and what this whole period looked like. So, Cause another really like disturbing and dark part of this is Freeman travels across the U.S. pretty much giving lobotomies at this point mm. because you know it's it's like hot new thing you know to like you got a you got a problem go get a lobotomy and like, like when Prozac came out and everyone was like it was in like pop culture everywhere like oh just I gotta take my Prozac you know yeah. so yeah it's like <laughs> it becomes right. a super common thing yeah so he goes around the U.S. visiting mental institutes for you know, a couple of decades after it's invented. So, I mean, at least two decades. And in 1951, this is a crazy, crazy case right here. In 1951, one of the patients at Iowa Cherokee Mental Health Institute actually dies because Freeman stops mid-procedure for a photo, a photo op. When he does that, he accidentally penetrates too far into the patient's brain. It, It highlights two things how careless the whole procedure is and like how careless he was about it, how like how not serious he was taking it. But it also highlights like this reminds me of last week's episode with fame. Now, like he was like famous almost. (laughs) He's taking photos for this invention. Like nobody today would be like, someone invents a new surgical procedure. I don't know who that person is. But back then that guy's like a, a star. He's seeking fame. So is he a notable character or is he seeking fame? I I mean, maybe he gets corrupted after a time. I think that he's careless and heartless. And the it just goes to show you the, just like ECT, like they have no idea what they're doing. Like a, they don't know how far you're supposed to go or or how, you know, how deep you can go until the damage is done. You're just kind of hammering I mean, away. You're, you're basically inventing it as you go. Yeah. You're using the research that you're actively doing to kind of guide the procedure, which is obviously dangerous. I hope he made a little mark on his ice pick to say, don't go past this point. Right. right. Yeah. Like, I wonder how that, how he knew how far down. Um, So, you know, in the two decades of his travels and, you know, doing the lobotomies, he'd personally performed as many as 4,000 on patients as young as four years old. See, that's and yeah, and again, as you mentioned, he had no surgical training. He's not a neurosurgeon. And as many as a hundred patients died of cerebral hemorrhages. How do you feel okay doing it? Like we wouldn't even give a four-year-old like medication for this kind of stuff because their brain's nowhere near developed. I mean, that's what how what could they it, were built differently these- back then though? Yeah, well, he probably, probably had a job, but yeah, still, it's like I got to go to work. It's like I got to get the afternoon with work. Quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty. It's pretty terrible to think that they were, man. Just how that you wasn't even what, that long ago. No, I know. I mean, we say a hundred people, as many as a hundred people out of four thousand lobotomies died. That today would be devastating. I mm-hmm. wonder if that's as devastating and of like a stat back then. No, it's probably pretty good. It's probably like, Ooh, a hundred out of 4,000. Wow. I'm really, I'm really doing good here. It's like CBT. Like only 
only 400 people died out of 4,000 or however many it was, right? Like 100. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I guess you can, it's all about the way, you know, he's a I mean, blast today, kind of guy. Yeah. Like, obviously today, that's an unacceptable number because of all the advances that we have. But like, I'm just kind of pointing out, I wonder in, you know, 1930s, 1940s, if that's as startling a number or if that's like, hey, at least we still saved 3,900 people. That's, though, with under the assumption that maybe they were saved. Yeah. Because there's, aside from death, there was a lot of other things that could have come out of it. So w- w- after lobotomy, now say you have, w- what are, first of all, like, what are the kinds of things that you would get a lobotomy for? Yeah, so... They were typically developed to treat like severe mental health conditions, as well as, like you said, addressing that problem of overcrowding in psychiatric institutions. Part of this, when Moniz uh, developed it, was it was under the he believed that it was a, like a lot of mental illness was due to physical malfunctions in the brain. Okay, that led to symptoms like psychosis or depression. And that if you sever the connection of the frontal lobe from other regions, there would be a disconnect and those symptoms would be decreased or non-existent. Which is for sure true, but what's your quality of life like after you for are- some, For some, it was okay. That's the thing that makes this controversial. Some people walked away happy. Yeah. But not enough to say that this is a completely effective strategy, right? So Moniz and Freeman both reported that there were improvements in patients. Um, There's also, though, alternative results of either no improvement or worsening symptoms. But because there were patients walking away that had improvements, it was like, oh, this is the miracle cure. So improvement has to be in quotations there, because I've, I've heard Freeman quoted as saying the results where he was intending to have quote clinically induced childhood. So that person might be happy, but they don't have the insight or like you've, you've given them an intellectual disability. Pretty much. Pretty much. And they're happy because they don't know. They're not giving problems anymore. And if you think about it, where our goal at this time is to decrease the amount of people in the psychiatric institutions, we would rather have them be you know, lack intelligence or, you know, shells of the people they were than be behavioral or um, having emotional outbursts constantly and be put in these asylums. So it sounds like it makes the people at where at the asylums and the people, the family members who are having problems with them, it makes them happy. But the person themselves, it's not. You're You're basically, your goal is not for like improvement it's basically to try to make them docile it seems like yeah and that's obviously rather inhumane so what's interesting though when you're you're making someone docile by damaging the prefrontal area and when you think of every serial killer we've ever talked about or every serial like there's often cases where there's damage to the prefrontal area so i wonder if this lobotomy ever created any monster And that's no, they did because, like, that's the thing I think is interesting. Because, like, we talk about how the disc, the disconnect, you would think it would make you like emotionless, right, or just like really flat, or but like yeah. actually, some patients, um, like some were able to improve to the point where they were discharged, but others became like more outspoken or more mood liable, like their mood mood swings. That's quite the opposite of what I would expect. Yeah, I mean, maybe like that that pre, that front part of their brain it has you know a big job in regulating emotions or you know um, executive function. So maybe they can't control themselves as much. That's yeah. what I would think, which is kind of dangerous. Absolutely. So I mean, you have you have those cases, and then you have the other cases where people lost the ability to have emotions or feel emotions. So they became apathetic, unengaged. They couldn't concentrate, and some actually came became like catatonic and then obviously some even died so so many mixed results mm. because yeah it literally was literally your brain yeah like it, and it, we have, have those mixed results but yet it would still adopted as like a miracle cure for mental health conditions in like by like the early 1940s it was adopted by like mainstream psychiatry so do you have any idea when this is falls out of use 
Depends. It depends where you are. So they are lobotomies are actually like a are banned in some places. So for example, in 1950, the Soviet Union banned them uh, for being contrary to the principles of humanity. Well, and that's the Russians. So I mean, the Russians, but I mean they're tough people. They they ban lobotomies. Um, Japan, Germany, and some other countries follow suit in later years. The U.S. never actually banned lobotomies. In 1967, Freeman was banned from performing any further lobotomies after another patient uh, suffered a fatal brain hemorrhage after one of his procedures. Still, the U.S. and a lot of the like Western Europe still never bans lobotomies, and they continue to perform them even through the 80s. So, like, not even that long ago, and they still are technically legal, but they're just performed very rarely today. Like, I know there's psychosurgeries where you, like, will remove little pieces of the brain if there's, like, you could see damage there. But I can't imagine people still doing transorbital, through the eyeball, hammer lobotomies. Right. That In, in the 80s, people were doing that? That's That's what I read. And, you know... A thing that also happens is like, so in the 50s, there started to become some scrutiny over the side effects. Think about that from 19, what I say, 36 was Freeman's first one into the 50s. And it takes them till the 50s to start to scrutinize the side effects of them. Like people for the whole 40s were like, oh, this is fine. Well, that's because of the new wave. Mental health in your face now. It's we've we've we're finally facing it. And back then it was like, let's just put these people away somewhere. And you don't see that. So, oh yeah, like there's lobotomies going happening and they're, they're going wrong. And that's in the mainstream media people. What, I mean, if, if you're not in any danger of getting one, do you care? I mean, that's where these people are at. I guess not. Something else happens in the fifties that kind of, um, decreases the need for lobotomies, which is a guess positive, depending on your view. Really? Um, antipsychotics and antidepressants right and they became widely available and they allowed people to basically be able to deal with more outpatient treatment and not need to have brain surgery yeah so that's that's good so in the 50s the earliest um psychotropic drugs are arriving and into the 70s where we don't have to hopefully those work much better than um lobotomies but so this is even a time even freud um the competitor to freud that people don't talk about is the people who were thinking um you know psychosurgery was the answer like we got to remove parts of the brain this person's acting this way this part of the brain is affected we need to do some kind of surgery there and freud's like no i think you can kind of like deal with this through talking and thank god see people give freud a lot of um guff (laughs) but i'll tell you what i mean he is a hugely pivotal figure in, I, I, we wouldn't be thinking you can literally change your brain, change the way it looks like, change the shape of it just by talk therapy. And you can. No one would have known that. You're not going to get any guff from Greg Freud. No, that's no, why we call well, him no no guff Greg. Well, I might give him some guff about his, you know, all the mom and butt stuff and oral fixations and Oedipus complex. He's he might have needed to be in lay in the chair for a little bit and talk and not just be the only one talking, but you know, his ideas, the framework is pretty solid. It's pretty good. So I know you already know this and I, I can't remember say anything. So one of the most notable people that got a lobotomy from Freeman Mm -hmm. was one of our hidden women, Rosemary Kennedy. She actually, Freeman performed the lobotomy on Rosemary Kennedy, and we all know how that resulted. And if you don't know, go back to our Hidden Woman episode. You might listen to that. If you messed up the brain of Joe Kennedy, who was like a hugely powerful figure, that that would have ended everything for him. Maybe that was part of it, but I mean, this is so crazy to think of Walter Freeman, this, I don't know, he's just kind of a scary figure to me. And doing this job on one of the most important families in the country and yeah. that not stopping him. Like, so, what, like, go ahead. I was just going to say, let's look at, so let's look at the psychology of this just one more time to kind of like recap how this can happen. Cause like, I think 
the lobotomy itself, we can understand that's all pretty, you know, straightforward. How in a society does this happen, though, where a man literally becomes a traveling roadshow doing performing lobotomies, and we all think that's wonderful. And meanwhile, people are literally walking away from those lobotomies, a shell of the person they were, dead, or just like, I don't know. It's like- Because the victim with- is, can't advocate for themselves. The thing is, what people- so there's two things. If if I showed you video clips of the conditions in an asylum and what it looked like and just naked, emaciated bodies on wet pavement dripping, just gruesome, gruesome um, visuals. And then I show you a video clip of someone, you know, hammering an ice pick into someone's eye. It's it's like you, you have to like weigh what's worse. And I think that people were thinking these they're paying for the asylum. I don't. I I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think they cared about the conditions of the asylums. I think they cared about. I think some people cared about how many people were in the asylums, but I still don't get how that affects or impacts or drives everyday people to care. Okay. Well, because like how- you said, they they are not exposed to that. When we finally find out the conditions of asylums, the American society is shocked. That was a Geraldo like special to show the conditions of what's going on in this asylums. So why do we as a society, the the everyday people, fall for this or like go nuts over this? Well, you have it, it just made life easier for people. The it's the hierarchy again. Yeah. The people that benefit the most from it are promoting it to be a miracle cure. Yeah. Right? Because well, like it ben- like we out. said, it benefits the the hierarchy. It benefits the people that are in charge of the asylums. It benefits the state who run the asyl- the asylums. It benefits all the people in power. The way they product this and they sell this to us is like this is the thing that's gonna fix all your problems, all these these symptoms that you're having. And we that's what we're fed. But even on a micro level, you know, if you're going into someone's family unit. And the wife is, you know, his, like giving the husband a really hard time. She's, you know, she's doing all these in his you mind. You better not give me any more guff, woman. Right? right? Is that what he says? All these horrible things, right? And all he's, want, he's like, all I want is my wife to be at home and quiet. And this guy comes and, you know, a half hour later, that's what she is. So he's a satisfied customer, even though he's taken her identity from her and robbed her of, you know, her potential and everything. It's a horrible thing, but what he wanted, he got like, he even, he like describes this one patient, you know, 21, 29 year old woman. The husband was having difficulty with her. He gave her the the lobotomy. I mean, she was always, you know, giving him, I don't know, just it's, it feels creepy even saying it, but like a hard time about yeah, She was always nagging him about his guys. Nice. Uh, yeah, exactly. Poker, you know, he's, she's like, tonight we're going to like watch dancing with the stars and just have a nice night. in. he's like, I gotta, I gotta meet up with the fellas. Yeah. Yeah. And then when she was done, she was quoted as saying, or he was quoted as saying that she had the personality of an oyster. She poured coffee endlessly into a pot, into a pot. Oh, that was like, sad. What? That it's sad, sad, right? And then the the doctor's advice, Freeman's advice was reward her with ice cream and punish her with smacks. And that's like, what? It's so terrible. I mean, it's just like a really dark time. It's amazing how far we've come in, you know, half a century or actually it's like 75 years, but still. So the, yeah. And this also really highlights the lack of other options. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do you think that people thought they were helping the person? So let's look at or, like, or, or was it Rosemary oh. Kennedy, for example. She was having like behavioral issues, right? And that's part of what influenced their decision to go forward with this. She was acting out. She was having outbursts. She was being promiscuous or whatever it was. Yeah. They loved her, though. That family loved Rosemary Kennedy. Oh, absolutely. I do think Joe they couldn't... thought they were going to help her. They no, weren't. See- I know they want to silence her in a way so she wouldn't yeah. embarrass the family, but I still think they loved her and I don't think they would have done it had they, because look at the guilt they ex- they had demonstrated it fo- like following. I know the easy answer is like, oh yeah, they just wanted her to be out of the way, but no, they weren't happy with the results. It's more complicated than that. You're right. But I think Joe, he's political aspirations for his sons 
he couldn't have the embarrassment to the family. He thought like at a, that's at a time where he thought that would have ruined the chances of, you know, Robert and John to yeah. do what they did. So he took the chance. So it wasn't really for her. It was definitely for them, the family. Well, in this case, in this case, sure. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, but I don't know. It's, it's a really dark thing. And I watched, um, well, Greg, let me ask you, is there any, even today when parents are bringing their kids in to, for medication and all that stuff, like, sure, it's for the child, but it's also for the parent, for the teacher, it's for everybody. Yeah. If anybody's struggling, it's not, I mean, I, I, as much as we would want to say like, I, oh, oh, it's only about that person, but it's also about all the people they affect and impact. It's true, I guess. Nobody just impacts themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what, though? Like, we do are coming at it from a different angle where we want them to feel better. You know, we don't, we don't, like, if someone's, you know, if we get someone, a woman who's depressed and she comes in and she's Are you talking about therapists? Yeah, like, I want- health professionals? Yeah. Yeah, I I thought you mean, like, you were referring to, like, the family members that are getting- Oh, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. right Yeah, I mean, I I gain nothing- yeah, my husband's life better. Yeah, yeah. I I don't care about the husband. I'm trying to. Yeah, my focus is, but like we're not. I don't think we're talking about the mental. Or I don't care about, about the wife. Professionals, but the husband. Yeah, Either I mean, you one. care a little bit. Or the parents. Right, right. In fact, yeah, that's 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 often pretty difficult with kids, where it's like, you, you know, if the parents would just do things a little bit differently. You yeah, know, you we, know, I, I, we always talk about that. It's like so much of the treatment process involves like helping the parents find different ways of interacting and approaching them. Yeah. Did you watch any, like I, I tried to watch some clips of it. I watched a, um, it wasn't real. It was like a, it was kind of like a movie thing, but I watched the little ice pick into the eye. That was hard to watch. No, I didn't watch any lobotomies. (laughs) Well, (laughs) is there actual lobotomies we can watch? No, it, it actually did a really good job, though. It was the show Lore on Amazon. Um, yeah, I know. Aaron Mankey. Yeah, it was pretty good, but it, it didn't really. It just showed it, but it was like, obviously, actors, but it's still pretty gruesome. But like, is there actual like, uh, I don't know, lobotomies somewhere that we can watch? Because I would be in the dark web. Yeah, I might just YouTube and see what I find. Yeah, why don't you come up with something and maybe you mess can around re- and find out? You know what I mean? You could do a reel about <laughs> just lobotomies. Uh, it's pretty dark. Pretty dark. So it sounds like we're pro ECT, nay on lobotomies. Is that <laughs> is that our official stance? That's yeah. where I'm standing right now. All yes. right. And you know what's funny and promising? It's actually promising that the world, society, isn't like gung-ho ECT. It's, I think it's actually super responsible that we are hesitant. And the only reason why we're hesitant is because of the things that we've seen in pop culture where we're like, okay, that's... No, I was going to say we're hesitant because of this. Oh, because of like, the We're learning from our mistake. Yes, yes. Because we went in blindly. We just took the procedures, it, it, like the word of these doctors, that this is the thing that's going to cure people and allowed it to happen for like two decades without even like saying, oh, something's off here. So I, I think it's like a responsible response for society to be like, whoa, let's let's slow it down with the ECT stuff. Yeah. And so the ECT must have some kind of therapeutic value because it's stuck around a lot longer and it's been refined. So yeah, it's kind of and, and it's it's definitely I mean, there's significant research happening on ECT actively. Yeah. So useful. Good. It is what it is. Right. It's useful, but it's not. It's not a <laughs> well. It's not a miracle cure, like you know they tried to label lobotomies. It, it's something that it can be helpful, and it's part of a person's treatment plan. But it's not the the end all be all. That's right. So, it rarely is. Prozac was supposed to be a, a miracle drug. It's kind it's of like not. the same kind of thing, but it's not. It's not. No. Why? What's wrong with it? Well, I've been taking it's it for not. years. I look fine. <laughs> it's not. Ter- it's not terrible. That's for damn sure. Like I think it's probably one of the the safer. And I never hear about. I never hear people talk about Prozac anymore. People use it. No, I believe it. I just never hear people talk about. it I feel like it was like so 
it's like such a hot topic. Now all I hear people talk about is Adderall, and that's just because of the shortage and all that stuff. Yeah. People need their Adderall. Gotta have the Addies. Hey, look, that's a stimulant too. Just like, I mean, I wonder how many Adderalls counts as a, um, electroconvulsive therapy because it's the same kind of stimulation. Uh, you know. Well, let's not uh, give anyone ideas. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. You done, Greg? Yeah, I'm done. All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. You really melt our hearts when you listen all the way to the end. And you're hearing this now because you made it. You made it to the end, and I'm proud of you. I don't know how you did it. <laughs> you're amazing. And we appreciate you. And we would love if you maybe just threw us a quick rating and review so that we can help continue to spread this to the wide, wide masses. Our mission is so clear. We need to reach everyone <laughs> and get the word out about society. Um, no, but we, we appreciate you guys listening and would love to hear the feedback. If you have it, uh, feel free to leave us a rating and view on any podcast platform that allows it or just hit us up on social media, as many of you guys have. And we always appreciate that. So, yeah, that's all I got. We'll be back next week. We will start our spooky agenda for the month of October. And we're excited, I think. So, I'm guess, excited. I'm excited, too. It's just a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you then. Everybody, have a great night. Enjoy this last couple days of September because October is upon us pretty soon. Have a good one. Okay. <laughs>